the United States of America is called a Christian nation. Christian nation. Christian nation. It's time for a moment of clarity with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Let us pray that this nation does come to a moment of clarity. Faith, faith, faith. politics, politics, history, history, and current events. Current events. And now, your host, Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily. I'm Derek Stone with a moment on sports part one. The Detroit Tigers defeated the Cleveland Guardians 6-2 this past Monday. Zach McKinstry singled to plate Andy Abanez. Javier Baez singled to send home Eric Haas. And Nick Maton doubled to score McKinstry in the third inning. Riley Green doubled to plate Abanez in the following inning. Andy Abanez belted a solo homer in the sixth inning. And Green singled to send home Haas two innings later to round out the Tigers scoring. Joey Wentz earned his first win of the season after he allowed two runs on three hits while recording five strikeouts in five and two-thirds innings of work. Wentz was relieved by four Tigers pitchers who combined for three strikeouts in the final three and a third innings of the game. In curling news, Doug Harrison and Ruth Wiebe were inducted into the Manitoba Curling Hall of Fame this past Sunday. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. And come back to Moment of Clarity. We have a lot of time and little to cover. No, wait, that's not right. Let's reverse that. We got a lot to cover and little time. And uh, joining me is my co-host. <laughs> Ed Bondarenko. That sounds like the Willy Wonka thing. You realize that? No, I, I don't. Oh, okay. It's Willy Wonka. Get out of here. <laughs> I can't. I'm hosting the show. But, uh, so... It's all uh, right. You've done it before. I've done it before. I'm I'm a trained professional. Don't try this at home, folks. Um, exactly where we're doing it from is home. Um, had an interesting article I read. Uh, actually, when I when I read it, it caught my attention, and I texted it straight over to Ed and said, "This is going to be part of our conversation this Sunday." About two U of M professors uh, that are getting together, and they they feel that there uh, needs to be a uh, wealth floor, which means a limit to how poor we will allow people to be in this country. And therefore, if they're hit that, if they're below that floor level, that we have got to give them more money. And where are we going to get this money from? By putting not just a floor, a wealth floor in, but a wealth ceiling. They want to cap, cap wealth to $1 billion. And as Ed pointed out to me, the billion dollars is the million dollars of yesterday, or the million dollars of yesterday is the billion dollars today, or something like that. You get the idea. Go ahead, Ed. One hundred billion dollars. Yeah, and that's that'd be a little bit better if that's saying we're going to cap it there. But I'm against any cap on wealth, and, and then they want to take the money and, of course, lift people up and by putting this cap on it. What they don't realize is. That they're only looking at one part of the equation. If you go to work and you 
you're told when you go to work that uh, you are only going to be allowed to make eight hours worth of time, even if you work overtime. Are you going to want to work that overtime? No, you're not. If you're not going to get paid for it, right? Could you imagine what if you told Elon Musk that all, all he can have is $1 billion? That's it. After $1 billion, everything that you own, Elon Musk, goes to the poor. What would cause him or what would be the driving force behind him to, let's say, start a business, uh, whether it was making rockets, cars, or Twitter noises? What would make him to keep on those employees once he's got his billion dollars? Because now he can live off the interest and uh, and never never have to worry about touching it again because anything he works for is gone. So they want to put a floor in and they want to put the cap on it and uh, take take that initiative away. What they don't understand is Elon Musk takes his money and how he becomes richer is he creates more work and more jobs. And by creating more jobs, more people are employed and they make more product. And as they make more product, he pays them. They have more money and they have ways to do things. And then he has more money, which he reinvests and starts more businesses. Take that away from him and he has no purpose to go any further. Now, as I read the article, uh, the one of the... Uh, professors at the University of Michigan is uh, Kathy uh, Velikoy, and the, she's she's in, in uh, archaeology, not archaeology, um, uh, uh, building things. <laughs> so, <laughs> not architect. Architect, that's it. Architect. School of architecture. That's Thanks. why you keep me here. Yeah, that's exactly why I keep you here. That and I like your wife. Um, so do I. Cool, yeah. Uh, and then you got Fabian Pfeffer. Now, when you look up at uh, a little bit about Fabian Pfeffer, everything that he teaches at the University of Michigan starts out with the word social. <laughs> social economics, social studies, social this, social that. Really says a lot where his where he's coming from. Uh, and so their, their solution is to cap how much wealth you can have. And, and the end of the article, uh, Fabian is uh, quoted as saying, one of the tasks that we set ourselves for this video, because they turned this whole thing into a video, was to envision a different kind of world that doesn't exist. <laughs> I want you to get this. They're envisioning a different kind of world that doesn't exist. That's what the art arts do. And I believe increasingly also that we as social scientists are asked to do is to envision this world that doesn't exist. We call this a man-made utopia. And what they don't understand is this world that doesn't exist can't exist. It's impossible to exist. And um, so why go through this except to make people uh, get their hopes up high? Reminds me of an old story. Um, I, I believe it was a uh, an African folktale about two animals. We'll go with, uh, for the sake of the story, we'll go with a donkey and a mouse, all right? Uh, donkey and mouse were two best friends. They got along great. Um, and one day, you know, the donkey was feeling a little down, wasn't uh, feeling right where it should be, was feeling unappreciated. So the donkey says, hey, we are going to throw you a party. We're going to invite everybody along and they're going to celebrate you and we're going to just dance and have a good time. And that's what they did. They threw a party and the animals from the farm all over the place got together and they celebrated and they danced and they ate. And uh, when the party was over, the donkey says, boy, that was some party, wasn't it, mouse? And then this is 
what they heard. <laughs> Mouse, wasn't that a party? Nothing. And he looked around and he looked down and realized that during the party and during the dancing, he had trampled the mouse to death. The moral is it of the story is if you're going to dance with a, if you're going to dance with a donkey, prepare to get trampled to death. But it goes further than that. Excuse me, is that a political allusion to the Republicans? Uh, well, yeah, anything, anyone who dances with a donkey is going to get trampled. Right. Um, but more importantly, that is, I honestly believe that there are some of these progressives that in their in their mind, they're thinking they're trying to help people out and they don't understand and in trying to help them, they're actually going to trample them to death. Uh, there's a book that I've alluded to in the past many a times. It's a fantastic book. And it was actually written by two, believe it or not, two people um, that were politically Democrats, liberals. But the book was called One Helping Hurts. And what they found out is uh, throwing money at the problem is not the issue. Matter of fact, when we come in and just trying to give a temporary lift up, you read the article, I believe, Ed, is they said, well, if we kept the the ceiling at at a billion dollars, we could take all the extra income and everyone would have $55,000. But for yeah. how long? And what happens when that's gone? And what happens when they're not trained to deal with money and it's gone and the covid money is a perfect example of that go ahead ed well you know there's people who are on fixed incomes today and they find themselves with government policies that are you know stealing from them through inflation and these people who have imposed this inflation i believe stand to benefit financially because they've sold uh sold futures short and so they'll pay back those dollars with deflated dollars. And yet people who can't do that on a fixed income are screwed. And similarly, you have a law that comes in and you say, hey, you can't make over this much money. And then you know how laws lag. You can't get the cost of living adjustments you want all the time because nobody wants to pay those in government. Yeah, I want you to notice, and I don't know if anyone's put this together. I want you to notice when the inflation started going on a really, really skyrocketing north is when they started sending people lots of money. Hey, yeah, exactly. We're going to give you lots of money. So now if we start pumping up the inflation as, as what would happen if all of a sudden you're taking from everybody else and trying to redistribute the wealth, you're going to cause this inflation storm. Very well, very well pointed out, Ed. And uh, therefore now poverty hasn't, poverty has not uh, gone away. We just redefined it as your poverty, you are poor with money. You know, you have money in the account, but you can't do anything with it. And how many people actually, when they got their COVID money, um, actually used it to stay afloat? Uh, let's take uh, Gailene on, on line one. Hey, hi. So, you know, you were talking about how throwing money at a problem and then what happens. And the perfect example of this is what happened when they took down the Berlin Wall. All the people that were on the communist side of the wall had been doing without all these luxuries forever and ever. And then when they took down the wall, they decided that they were going to bring everybody up to the same standard of living and gave them all like $50,000 or something like that, you know? Um, and this, this story was related to us by our good friend, Ramon, who uh, his mother is German. And he, was, and, and he was raised over in Holland. She had left Germany. And what, 
he said well, what had happened, and this is an example of it from his childhood, is that all these relatives, these cousins, these distant cousins that had been on the other side of the wall, the first thing that they did was go out and buy a fancy car, and they went out and bought fancy foods and everything else, and then they had no money left. They didn't know how to invest it. They didn't know what to do just bought themselves toys and luxuries. And then when they came to visit in Holland, they expected Ursula to give them everything and to wait on them hand and foot and to not contribute. And they stayed about a week, and then she got rid of them because she was done with it. And she's like, nope, you can't be here. But it's exactly, exactly what is happening when they throw money at people who have no concept of ownership or of investment or of working for it and of earning it for themselves. And there's no pride in, in ownership, no dignity in ownership when you just throw money at people. Hey, Gailene, that's a really good point. Do you have your radio on the background? I do not. Oh, it's just, you got a terrible echo behind you. So that's she right. has your radio on. She has, yeah, probably. Uh, thanks a lot. And great point. Thanks for calling that in, Gailene. Uh, let's take Joe. Hello, hey, Joe. Brothers, how are you? Are you there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Hey, Joe. Are you there? What? what? Hello. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? <laughs> All right. A <laughs> uh, couple things. Uh, this is the usual leftist failure repackaging, repurposing, twisting the language, lipstick on a pig to try to sell you the same pile of manure you wouldn't buy the last time, universal income. Well, that very well could be heading towards that, yeah. And it's been discussed before a lot. I know this is something that uh, our dear friend Phil, who I'm hoping he'll be back on the air with us soon, uh, he was on this morning on his show. I guess he doesn't like us anymore. That's okay. I don't like us either. But, um, but the other but he, yeah, thing he's is, talked a lot about it, and this might be exactly what they're talking about, and in the end, it can't work. Exactly, and they don't ever learn. You equate this to the federal minimum wage, putting aside the whole unconstitutionality, they don't have authority, and the metal. The cost of living in BFE is not the same as in San Francisco. You cannot dictate a federal wage across everything. You cannot dictate a minimum income level because it has to vary by location based on cost of living. To Galen's story. You flood that kind of money into a, a rural community it is not enough for San Francisco. It's too much for that rural community, and it wreaks havoc in the economy. And also to what Galene was saying, the lack of ownership. So there's no respect for it, which is why housing projects, the, uh, you know, always failed. You put somebody in, they don't respect it because they don't own it. They destroy it and they get leveled. Uh, but the Bradford colony, people haven't learned. Failure. The Mayflower commie compact. Everybody owned, everybody had their, quote, 
equity and fair share, and they darn near almost all starved to death until we instituted the free market and private property ownership and self-respect to own and earn your own living in your own way. And as they say, the rest is history. It made America what it is today. All right. Thank you, Joe. Um, All right. Love you, brothers. Love you. Talk to you later. Yeah, it's uh, the American way. We we see what we perceive as a problem. And I will admit, hunger is a problem. But uh, we, we've, been, we've been trying to slip into socialism since FDR. Now, we, we put different uh, lipstick on it, to use Joe's analogy, and call it different things. But under FDR, he refer, referred to it as welfare capitalism, something that Henry Ford was very much involved with, believe it or not. Uh, he, he liked FDR and like FDR, very much anti-Semitic, which has nothing to do with this. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, so, um, which is just basically trying to uh, redistribute wealth. And now you have to ask yourself: when, when the head of a head of an economy in the business world wants to redistribute wealth, you have to ask why. And it's generally a case of power. But uh, I referred to a book earlier. It was called "When Helping Hurts." It's written by Stephen Corbett and Brian uh, uh, Fickert. Uh, excellent book because they had to come to an understanding. They came to a conclusion. That when, and, and they first were writing about missionaries. When we send out missionaries throughout the world, what we do is we send them on short-term missions. We send them in there. They throw money at a lot of problems. They have this problem with their farming or this problem with their water or this problem uh, with, with their schools. They'll go in there and they'll quickly build a school without having any teachers in it, build them a school and say, look what we've done. We built them a school. Well, what good is the school if they can't teach them anything in it? If they don't have any teachers, right? So they end up with a building they don't know what to do that's now taking up farmland that they use to produce corn on. Or they'll go in there and say, hey, you got to do a lot better. What we're going to do is we're going to bring in tractors and teach you how to farm with tractors. And you'll produce your corn so much better. But when the tractor breaks down, they don't know what to do. And by this time, they don't want to go back to the hard way of doing things. The tractor's broke. They can't fix it. They don't produce their corn. So when they go in there and trying to help by throwing money at it, in the end, it hurts them. It also hurts the missionaries too, because they go in there and they have a false sense of security of what they're doing and what they don't realize is they're actually hurting the people. And they leave with their own little God complexes going on saying, look at the good we did. And in reality, they did a lot of harm. So they're lying to themselves. Yeah. Ed. Well, I want to challenge your statement that Henry Ford was a socialist because, and, and if anybody else has a view on this, feel free to call in 734-822-1600, Stump Rick. But uh, I mean, the guy was opposed to labor unions. How many socialists do you know were opposed to, you know, uh, labor unions? And he may have been a corporate capitalist, which puts him in the you know in the area of the, the national socialists. But that's a whole different area than saying that he was a Marxist, a socialist, a communist. There's there's just no way. It's well, the term I used was welfare welfare capitalism, which he pushed real hard for. And along with FDR, and you just have to read his own writings. Read it. Read. I, I understand what you're saying there, but to, to take it with the broad brush of socialist, that paints a whole different picture, and it's it's a word that I hate to was, waste on him. 
I don't because he was very he was very much for even uh, FDR's uh, um, New Deal, which is and which you mentioned you mentioned FDR being one of the earliest representatives of of uh, socialism in I our government. Earliest. I said he was. I didn't say earliest. We we go I, back you to said one of. He, he, I didn't. What I said is he was. He was heavily into welfare capitalism. He's one of the early ones that pushed welfare capitalism, which oh, is in itself is part of socialism. Derek, play the tape. But but <laughs> the reason the reason you have to understand the reason he Henry Ford didn't like this unions is because it was affecting his dollar. If this was something that would have been hurting somebody else's business, he would have been fine with it. You know what I. I take issue with that because Henry Ford instituted the highest hourly pay rate in order to keep one way it was the well actually it preceded the unions for that matter it preceded the UAW that he offered the $5 a day pay rate because he saw that philosophically if you don't pay your workers they can't buy your products and he was trying to build a product for the the common man or build a middle class which he did which socialists are opposed to or was that just a marketing ploy? Because he also went out and bought out a lot of farmland down in the rubber tree plants in South America and paid the workers down there nothing. For the well, they weren't American plants. workers. They weren't American workers. So <laughs> screw was, them. Was it a marketing <laughs> ploy up here of saying? I mean, his ploy was if you build the cars, you should be able to afford to buy one. Yet the people in South America, where he was getting the cheapest labor, and by the way, the car companies still do the same thing today. They, they they'll keep some stuff open and say, yeah, we still have. We saw Only we call it lithium. Yep. Only we call it lithium. Um, so, uh, yeah, great marketing to get his own employees to take the money back that they they earned working for him and to give it back to him. But he was not all that kind when it came to money. If you want examples, is look what he did in South America. Um, and I'm all for business making money, but he pushed real strong for the New Deal under uh, FDR, and he those who would. Better describe it, and yes, I put welfare capitalism in in bed with socialism, because the end result is the same. The only difference is is welfare capitalists such as such as Henry Ford would put it on to the shoulders of the government to provide, where instead of himself, where FDR also was doing the same thing, and he pushed hard for the government to cover a lot of stuff. Mm, read my head spinning. Read Henry Ford's own writings. Pin him how you want. Oh, yes. He was a socialist, but Folks, he was a greedy socialist. I can't be the only one who who wants to uh, defend the honor of Henry Ford. <laughs> yeah, well, you know your show. I can argue. I'm done. So, <laughs> but when you talk about socialism in government, I told the story on my show probably twice already. It is about David Crockett when he was in Congress back in the you know early 1800s and. He had voted with Congress, a number of members of Congress, to provide relief for a number of people who suffered from a large fire in Washington, D.C. And they voted $20,000 for relief for these people and thought that was a good thing for government to do. And then Crockett's riding his horse through uh, uh, his home district and a farmer sees him from the field and recognizes him, comes out to talk to him, a farmer, and says, well, I will not vote for you. He says, well, why not? He says, well, I used to support you, but I won't now. You spent it wasn't your money to spend on, you know, you violated the Constitution. It wasn't your money to spend on those people. Spend your own money, not my money. And Crockett had a, a real aha moment. 
He yep. came around. He says, that, that was wrong. Yep. So let's get to Gary. And then we've got two callers. We'll get them both one right after the other. Get to Gary. Hey, How guys. you doing, Gary? Yeah, as, as for Harry, Henry Ford, I and it's not 100% accurate here, but I think he's like the Donald Trump of his time. Now, everything was different then, and, and it's not 100%, but he had to do what he had to do with the different parties and different groups of people to get what hey, he Gary, wanted. We will, so, we will get you back online after this hard break. I didn't realize we're that close to the break. We'll be back after these messages with Gary. Pastor Richard Dietering on WAM. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily. I'm Derek Stone with another moment on sports. The Detroit Tigers earned their 17th victory of the season and 7th series win when they defeated the Cleveland Guardians 5-0 this past Wednesday. Riley Green grounded out to plate Zach McKinstry, and Andy Abanez doubled to send home Javier Baez in the first inning and Spencer Torkelson singled to score Baez, Akil Badu doubled to plate Torkelson, and Abanez scored on an error by Gabriel Arias in the third inning to complete the Tigers' scoring. Eduardo Rodriguez registered his fourth triumph and lowered his earned run average to 1.57 when he threw 67 of his 99 pitches for strikes, and recorded eight strikeouts in seven spectacular innings of work. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. That's right, that's right, I'm sad and blue, because I can't do the boogaloo. I'm lost, I'm lost, can't do my thing, and that's why I sing. Gimme, gimme that thing. Silent breed is people! We've got to stop them somehow! And we're back, and we were talking to Gary on the phone before we were interrupted by the, those wonderful announcements that help pay the bills here. So, hey, Gary, how's it going? Uh, still doing fine. It's a beautiful day okay. down here. <laughs> we're dealing with uh, all the other issues that the whole country has, though. Every day it gets more and more um, frustrating that our federal government has betrayed us in so many different ways, uh, categorically. Uh, right now, I mean, they're they're just um, they're traitors. Period. That's all there is to it. But uh, we're, we called uh, about something a little different. Um, you were talking about when people get too much money and they don't know how to handle it. Well, I remember uh, 25 years ago, I was living in uh, Grants Pass uh, in Oregon, and it was a very small community, maybe five thousand, seven thousand. I don't really know, and. When I went to look for a job, door-to-door to businesses, the people, the management was amazed that somebody in this valley was actually looking for a job because for three generations, everybody was living on welfare. Nobody wanted to work. They were happy to sit on their butts all day and collect the government check and not improve their lives, improve their children's lives, just be white trash and just sit there all day drinking their Bud Light and whatever they were doing and ignoring the possibility or even the prospect 
of making their lives better and improving themselves. And that was 25 years ago. So it's, it's alive and well now, if it was alive and well then. Yeah. Good point. Appreciate it. Anything to say to that, Ed? I think he's nope. very well. Thanks a lot. Very, very right. succinct. We got Martin on the phone who wants to make a comment about Henry Ford. I think I started a war here. Go ahead, Martin. Yeah, I just want to let you know that Henry Ford was an about Episcopalian. He was doing living his, and running his business based upon the teachings of the Episcopal Church as they interpreted the teachings of Christ. And I think that's one of our biggest problems today. Our churches are not stepping up and doing the job. We don't even know what our jobs are. What is the role of the parishioner sitting in the pew? It's more than just sitting there listening to the pastor, I believe. I would but hope how so. Does the, how does the um, church and the parishioners interact with our government? Okay. Thank you, Martin. Good point. Good point. You know, and we fall we fall into the. Uh, I don't want to get into this too much into the religious is what is he makes what is the what is the purpose of the congregation of that church, the body of Christ? Where do they fall into doing things? Episcopalians they tend to fall into what I would call theologically into the all mill group. And their their place is, hey, we got to do everything we can do to usher in the the end and going into God's kingdom by by making the world such a great place that Jesus would want to come back to. And uh, that is his that that was his goal, and somewhat. But I still see that he was he was still very much Henry Ford was very much. You know, he fought for the minimum wage back then. Did did, did you know that, Ed? He provided in excess of the minimum wage. No, he, I didn't know he, he fought for fought. A national. But he so he he could keep up. He fought for a national uh, minimum wage, and. Uh, what got really bad, though, is the, the Communist Party started getting all over his case there towards the end because they noticed that his profits were going up and up and up. And by 19, by 1926, uh, the labor's receipts were making less per car than what he was making because he was making more and more money, even though he was paying what they agreed. And they worked it out. But the labor unions, by the way, and they unionized not because of money. The, the, the sit-down, the big Ford sit-down wasn't over money. It was over safety issues. But whether you like it or not, the Miller Bridge, the Miller Bridge fight was over safety? This big sit-down because they were working on safe environments. I know somebody who actually is dead now, but he, he lived during that time. And he says his biggest problem was that they were, they were, uh, they were working in a dangerous environment. Well, yeah, yeah. Look at the Diego Rivera <laughs> murals down the Detroit yeah. Institute of Art. So uh, he said that's what he was fighting over is because he was it was not over money. It was over the fact that they didn't know if they were going to come out at the end of every, every day alive. You know, I'm Googling, did Henry Ford support a minimum wage? And there's everything. Everybody talks about his $5 an hour minimum wage, but nothing about him supporting a national political law. So yeah. I don't know. As I yeah. am, please get his read his own writings. Don't believe the hype that Ford puts out today about him. Read his own writings. I would believe nothing Ford puts out today. They're a, a, an adjunct of uh, China, so you know what do they know? And they're sorry, all owners of the four, of the lions. So you got that too. Yeah, that's true too. 
So we see in today in our schools, and what I wanted to point out where this started out is we see in our yeah. schools a big push, a big push towards the redistribution of wealth. That um, by giving people that have not more, by taking from those that have more, will somehow fix the problem. And it's not going to. What is the problem? In this country, I think our problem is laziness, to be honest with you. And I'm not saying that people that are poor are lazy. Here's what I mean by we're lazy. In this country, we figured the best way to fix a problem is just to throw money at it. We don't think out and look at the problem as a whole and find out why it is. Well, you want to, you know, I, I very, I don't quote or even talk about this person very much, but uh, uh, Dreyfus, he, he's right on the nail. You guys don't teach, you don't, you don't teach civics over here anymore. No one knows how yeah. the government's supposed to work. No one knows what a representative government is supposed to look like. No one knows what the House of Representatives is for. No one knows what the Senate is for. So we we, we have that. We have people that are going to look at a problem and say, well, we got to fix this problem, so let's throw money at it. That's the lazy route because the, that fix is temporary at best. That is, okay, I've thrown money at that. It goes down to the old thing of throwing out the, uh, the one, one person will go out and throw uh, a life preserver out to somebody and uh, throw them the whole thing, the rope and everything else and say, here, save yourself. And the other ones will throw the life preserver out and uh, say, hey, tie the end of the rope on so I can pull you in, right? Some of it's, you got to do some work yourself here. Um, yeah. So we're you know, throwing out the life preserver, the rope and all and saying, here, save yourself. We'll come back later. That's lazy. What we need to be doing is, well, teaching our children First of all, that uh, they don't automatically inherit a way of life, that they have got to work for a living. Let's teach them that things are not free, that you do not just walk in and, and feel that you are entitled to it and therefore you are entitled to it, you should get it. We're teaching, teaching our kids to be lazy. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's interesting you should mention what we're teaching our kids. And I got approached this week by somebody who asking if I would have them on as a guest to talk to them about their, their movement here. Three MSU graduates launch innovative national effort to provide resources for students on financial literacy. They discovered that students were not prepared for basic financial knowledge when they left college for the marketplace. You know, that's the, that's the basis of socialists right there. You don't know how the market works and nobody getting, these guys are finding out, nobody gets out of college, they're from MSU. You know, nobody gets out knowing how money works and they wanna teach that and they're, they're, they're having some success three years later. Yeah, well, I, I can say for sure that people are not taught over here how to deal with their, um, with their money. How many people are taught in school that when you write a check, what you're actually doing is you are creating a currency. You're putting more money out there than what's actually out there at that point. That hasn't come out of your account yet, so you got this float time in between. It's actually uh, a form of currency that's backed up by, well, your bank account supposedly, but what happens when it's not there? I, yeah, it, well, that's true. That's, yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was listening, I listened to the Bill Whittle uh, podcast and they were talking about classes that people attend. And there's a course, there's a professor who has a course that it's basically standing room only. People are fighting to get into this course. It has nothing to do with what I was just talking about. 
But it was like they're looking at what do students need instead of what do we want to shove down their throats. And one of them was financial uh, um, education. They couldn't balance a checkbook. You mentioned a check. They couldn't balance a checkbook. And this college class is doing simple things. It's totally unrelated to these three MSU guys. I just happened to listen to it on the on the Bill Whittle broadcast or podcast. He's talking about it and then other classes like that that meet people's needs and people are auditing it. They're jamming in. There's a there's a one year waiting period. How to how to balance your checkbook? I mean, my goodness. Could you imagine if people were actually taught what a representative government looks like that our congressmen shouldn't be going to Washington to do what's best for Washington, that they should be going to for Washington themselves. to do what's best for their constituents, right? And to act, you know what? I was I was just talking to someone about whether you like a mansion or not, I think he's actually there to represent his constituents. I think he is there to represent Virginia. He sold them out on energy. He sold them out. He finally gave in on it, huh? So Well, that was earlier last year. Yeah, yeah. He, he caved uh, for some big uh, sweeping budget deal, and he was promised something, and he didn't get it. But to I get he it. He out of that. No, he, he, he finally caved. Yep. Sorry right. for that idea. But yeah, well, I used to think that then about him. But uh, there's a know, reason he's a millionaire. There's a uh, our our constituents should not be living. Our, where our constituents, the 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 representatives should not be living in Washington. They should no. be living at home, and they should be when they go to Washington. They should be going there for the benefit of their constituents, not the party. Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter. You should be going to Washington to represent your district and what their needs are and what their desires are and not trying to take money from half of your constituents to give to another half of your constituents or to give to another country or to give to somebody else. They should be there watching out for your interest. We don't that have a right, government. That goes right to that Davy Crockett story. Here he represents a district in Kentucky and instead He's looking out for the welfare of people in D.C. Now, granted, Congress controls or is supposed to control D.C., but he was taking money out of these farmers' pockets for somebody else. Right. Yep. So we don't have that. And then, then, so your representative is supposed to be representing you and the taxes you pay and where, where those taxes go and uh, how much are those taxes. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And your state senate should be there fighting for what's good for your state as a whole, not what's good for Washington. But yet we don't see that in any of the senators, Republican or Democrat. I think that goes back to the 17th Amendment again. It's you know, it's no longer a state appointed position by the state legislature to represent the interests of the state. But instead, it's to represent the interests of the political uh, action committee that raised enough national money to support you so that they can get another swing vote in the Senate to support their efforts at socializing America or whatever they want to do. So you you have you have the House of Representatives that is supposed to represent you, the individual, the constituent for your district. Then you have the senator that's supposed to represent your state. We have one that's supposed to represent the government. And that's the president. We haven't had a president that has been running the country in a very long time as far as looking at the welfare of, of the nation. 
Um, we have a bunch of mini mini presidents in Congress and a lot of bunch of mini presidents in, in Senate where they're trying to do his job of watching out for the country and the and the borders of this state and the constitution of this state and uh, they're they're doing the party line instead of uh, doing what they're supposed to do. I think you might have overlooked Donald J. Trump there for a brief second. I think he was looking out for the American citizen. Yeah, but what did we have? We had we had uh, Congress and the Senate trying to do his job for him. Well, that's a different story. Okay, yeah, but, but I think as a president, he got, was in Congress. We've got a bunch of mini presidents, and they're trying to do his job for him. We have not been able to have a president do his job in office in a very long time. I'm sorry, Donald J. Trump may have wanted to do a lot of stuff, but you have to admit Congress stopped him from doing a lot of stuff that he needed to get done. That he tried, even when we had even when we had the House. Yes, yeah. even when we had. Both houses of Senate or both houses of Congress. So I, I you know, from my statement, we have not had a president who's been able to do his job in office in a very long time. Okay, qualified by Ben Abel. All right, yeah. But you know, we're, you speak of something that's actually part of the the larger problem that we have right now. We're supposed to have three branches of government, and we have the legislature has given over its role to the fourth branch of government, the administrative state, which nobody elects, only gets appoints and can't be can't be fired by anybody because of civil service rules. Then you got the president who then tries to do Congress's role, role by executive order because he can't get them to do what he wants them to do. And then you got the judiciary that does whatever the heck they want to do because they interpret what's done. So, so what you're saying is no one is doing the job that the that the Constitution has actually been designed to do, and yet they've all taken an oath to do exactly what the Constitution said they should do. None of them are doing it. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Exactly. Uh, you know, and I think a lot of this, and I was thinking about this a lot. You know, up until the internet, up until um, Gore invented the internet. Uh, we had basically very few select people in the media, what we called the free press, and they were nothing but free. They, they were moguls. And they were running the thought process of this country. Whatever they said was what was designing the opinions of the people. You couldn't go against it because you didn't have opposing views. You want to know why now people, for a short time, people were hating Fox News is they weren't going with the flow. You want to know why people were not happy with getting people talking on the internet is because, well, they're speaking against what the media would like you to have. So this this fourth estate that is you brought up a couple times over the last few weeks, the, the press has not been doing its job either. I mean, they're protected in the, in the First Amendment so that they can actually bring us to what's happening into it, but they are in control of the same greedy people. And it's not greed for money, it's greed for power. You know, when you look at what just happened this week with the Comer investigation, the, the committee that came out with evidence that reveals the corruption in the Biden administration and only one network as, as uh, well, I'll say one major network, I'll call Fox a major network. They're the only ones that cover, gave it any coverage. It got no coverage on the you know ABC, NBC, Alphabets, uh, CNN, MSNBC, nothing. It's 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 frightening if you can't get that you can't get the american people aroused to throw the bums out and that was that's the job of the press to arouse the nation yeah speak to power 
But instead, what they're doing is they're, again, going back, they're playing the party lines. And I want you folks to remember the parties, the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, they are not the government. They are private organizations that are trying to fit in their best interest into the government. Both of them. They, they are not government entities. They are private entities wanting to control the government. So we better be very careful when we... Do you stand by a party or do you stand by the nation? There's a question. Because the the Democrat Party only has their interest in mind. The Republican Party has their interest in mind. The Green Party has their interest in mind. Yeah, you try to find a party that best aligns with you. But do you want a government that works for you or do you want a party that works for you? Because the parties are going to change. Unless we, get, unless we start learning civics in this country, we're going to continue to bring in and put idiots into Congress over, the point of, over and over. The point of partying and, and, you know, the word party is a congregation of people, you know, whether it's to celebrate something, you know, right. or to organize for a position. And that's what political parties are supposed to be, to organize and represent a certain political position. It was the Democrats were left, the Republicans were right. At one time, they were seen as they were the party of the wealthy, but Quite frankly, they were the party of anti-slavery is why they were organized. They were organized for a purpose. And like Reagan said, the 80-20 rule, if they represent you on 80%, support them because there's always going to be a disagreement on that 20. But now, you know, it's getting kind of amorphous to where you you can't you can't get every it's only the Democrats that have this solid um, um cohesion on being to the left, whereas the right, the I won't say the right. Yeah, the Republicans are willing to reach across the aisle on common interest items, you know, and they they, and, 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 they promised and, going in. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I am. I am not one to toe the party line. I am not a party line person. I am. I, I am happily in that group that calls themselves an independent, because I have seen. I have seen time and time and time again where exactly what you just described is they went go in there saying. We're going to do what your congressman said that they are going to do. We're going to represent you, and they never do. They back out. When we had a when we had the House and Senate in line, and we had President Trump in, how much was our president able to get done that he was trying to get done? Nothing. I there, won't say nothing. Don't don't there, tell me that. Well, he got quite a lot done. Started drilling, drill baby, drill. Started he got that going. So he just did away with uh, stuff that was signed into executive order before him. If he couldn't do it by executive well, that's order. That's doing something. I'm, I'm sorry. Trump accomplished a lot. There's just no two ways I, about I, it. And I would say that Trump did not accomplish anything nearer than what he wanted to accomplish because he had a Congress and a Senate that wouldn't help him out. Same I'll believe that, too. Biden's not we never got on either. We never we, got the full wall. We had see, Paul Ryan stumping against him. We, yeah, and here's the problem is this is not how the Congress is supposed to be working. And that's what you're missing. Ed. This is not how Congress is supposed to be working at all. It's not a, supposed to be a party line issue when it goes in there. Each one of those congressmen are supposed to be representing their direct district, and that's it. Nothing more, nothing less. They're not there to bolster up the party. They're, not, they're there for one purpose, and that is to represent their constituents. And the senators are there to represent the needs of their state. Well, they, ever since they became elected and not appointed by the state, they've lost that priority, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Our government is not working the way it's supposed to. 
Do you think that if there was even for a moment that each each one of those members of the Congress were actually representing the well-being of their constituents whether the, rather than their party? Do you think for a second that Trump could have actually gotten more done? Or the directions that that this old babbling idiot is doing now in Washington might have gotten redirected by a Congress? So um, it's they're not doing their job. And to try to, to try to say, well, he got a lot done, yeah, as much as you can be, but could you imagine well, how much could get done if the government was actually doing what they're paid to do? I, I, I'm looking for a reaction from you. I mean, yeah, I well, want I to think I'm still, I'm still thinking in terms of the, the representing their districts, you have to find common goals between those districts. You have to find common things that you can vote on. I mean, that's the whole point, is building a consensus in Congress. Do we have time for this caller? No, we don't. No? Okay. All right, folks, we'll be back next week on a moment of clarity. Have a good day. You've been listening to a moment of clarity on Wham Talk 1600 with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Be sure to tune in again next week right here on Wham Radio.